0: Well, as you already know um, and are well aware this morning, the subject of our discourse is going to be God's view of human sexuality, particularly focusing on what God has to say about homosexuality. Um, I rarely break from the book we're preaching through uh, to do something topical, but today is going to be one of those days. Um, In fact, it'll be part one of a two-part series, and we'll finish up next week. But we aren't alone. Uh, we've already talked about the fact that today, churches all over Canada will be preaching on God's view of sexuality. Of course, their preaching on this subject is in response to the fact that Canada just passed a law that forbids anything the government deems to be conversion therapy. And so you can no longer say um to anyone that homosexuality is wrong, that they need to repent and change of that lifestyle without it being punishable by law up to a maximum of five years in prison currently in Canada. So this would include um, calling the homosexual to repent of his lifestyle. It means that you you cannot stand in a pulpit in Canada and say that there are only two sexes and that anything else is perversion of God's truth. You can't do anything the government considers an attempt to persuade a sexual deviant to change his lifestyle because it's sinful. You can't give counsel to even to someone who comes in the church and says, I need help, I'm struggling with my sinful sexual desires. If you counsel that person to repent of their their homosexuality, if someone reports it, you can be imprisoned, even though they've asked for that. And because of that, every church preaching on God's truth on homosexuality this morning in Canada is doing so for the first time illegally and risking imprisonment. Well, what does that have to do with us? Well, all over our country today, thousands of churches in the U.S. are all preaching on the same topic, biblical sexuality, and we do so for a few different reasons. Let me share a few reasons that I've decided to join this morning. Well, first, we are going to preach on this topic this morning in solidarity with our faithful brothers and sisters in Canada. We can't change their consequences, but we can certainly provide a strength that comes from knowing that Christians all over the U.S. are thinking of them, praying for them, and standing with them. Um, I've heard and seen several social media posts from other pastors who have been encouraged just by the fact that there are many U.S. churches who are willing to preach with them on the same subject. And so that's one reason, because it does encourage them. Another reason that I want to preach on this topic this morning is because, well, the U.S. is not all that far behind Canada. As far as I could find this week, currently I discovered New to me, in fact, that in the United States, there are 20 states that ban conversion therapy of minors. 20 states. Another five in the U.S. have partial bans, and so we really are not far behind Canada. Beyond that, we recognize that sexual perversion drives our entire culture. I mean, we recognize that, right? It's everywhere. It's on billboards, it's on television, it's on commercial ads. You can't even get through Christmas season without seeing a homosexual Santa Claus somewhere. It's taken on a new persona in our age. Um, You know, there was a time where you wouldn't even say the word homosexuality in public. Um, It was not spoken of. It was deemed taboo. It was inappropriate. It just wasn't a conversation fit among admirable people. The stigma of sin was still attached to it, or at least the general knowledge that it was unnatural and perverse and humanly acceptable, but we are long past that time in history. In a very real way, our current cultural climate demands that we as a church isolate this sin because our society has isolated this sin and elevated it even. The sinful stigma has not only been removed, but now our culture revolves around sexual perversity. Our culture has elevated homosexuality and the LGBTQ movement to where now you're actually made to feel sinful if you don't agree or accept the lifestyle as just a suitable preference. So times really have changed. We really do live in the day in, the, in our country that's described in Isaiah 5.20. It says those... There are those who call evil good, and they call good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We see that. We talked about that earlier this morning. In our country, we have laws centered around LGBTQ rights. Well, what does that mean? Just think about that. It's not rights for a group of people. It's laws that are giving rights to a particular sin, and so because culture has elevated this particular sin, really the church is forced to deal with it individually, and so that's the other reason we're doing this this morning. By the way, in case you were interested, the pressure is coming from a minority of people, the UCLA School of Law, the Williams Institute, says that only 3.5% of U.S. adults identify as homosexual. homosexual. Only 3.5%. And you see, they've turned our whole country upside down. It might feel like it's far greater, but that tells you how much influence this movement really has, because in reality, it's a very small percentage of people. They have such an effect because they're in reality, as an evil force behind the LGBTQ movement. We need to recognize that it's a spiritual force in nature. Satan does what he's always done. He seeks to corrupt God's created order. And we understand that Satan can't thwart the plans of God, but he certainly does have authority here on this earth, at least until Christ returns, and he operates just like he always has. Recall back to the garden, has God not said... It's one of his favorite phrases in some form or another. Did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree, Eve? Did God really say homosexuality is wrong? Did God really say marriage had to be between just a man and a woman? Did God really say that was true? And so Satan hasn't changed at all. And Now, I do want to make the statement here at the beginning this morning. The primary reason for pointing out sin in the life of an unbeliever is to prove their need for Christ, and we have to remember that. The homosexual lifestyle is a sinful lifestyle, and if we are to truly love them because we want them to see the need for Christ, then we have to warn them of a sinful lifestyle. The overarching truth of the message this morning is that there is hope for the homosexual if he or she will repent and turn to Christ There are a couple other things that I hope to do through this. By the time we're done next week, we will have covered everything the Bible says about homosexuality, and you will have the tools that you need to be able to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about biblical sexuality? You'll also be able to answer a lot of the oppositions um, concerning homosexuality in the Bible. We'll just really deal with the ones that are legitimate. We'll ignore those that are just nonsensical. So we understand that Satan is behind the evil in our culture. Satan's attacks are often heard in our current country the most in phrases like, well, I'm living my truth, right? I mean, that's how it works today. I'm living my truth. Or you might hear it this way, well, you do you and I'll do me, which is to say you can have your truth and I can have mine. So I want to begin this morning by pointing you to the source of truth, just plain truth. And so when we speak of truth, we need to ask the question, Whose truth? By what standard are we judging truth? Who gets to decide what is true? We know everyone's opinion can't be true because you can't have two polar opposites, two contradictory views, and both be true. And so where do we go for absolute truth? And so we're going to start there this morning. I just want to read through a few passages you don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Psalm 25.5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. And so the psalmist looks to God for truth. Psalm 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So again, we see here in the psalms that God is the source of truth. It says that the sum of his word is truth. James 1.18, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Again, God's word is truth. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so it's through Christ and the teachings of Christ that are truth. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So God is a God of truth, and those who worship him have to do so in truth. John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so it's God's truth alone that has the power to set men free. Just a couple more. John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. This is speaking about the Holy Spirit, and he will disclose to you what is to come. That is to say, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus himself says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So whose word is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the words of God. Ephesians 1.13 speaks of the message of truth. 1 Corinthians 3.6 speaks of rejoicing with the truth. And 2 Timothy 2.15 speaks of handling the word of truth, which is God's word. And so God's word is our source of absolute, undeniable, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient truth. And God's word alone. And so when we ask the question, what does the Bible say concerning homosexuality, we are just simply asking, what is the truth about homosexuality? Not anyone's opinion, we don't care about that. Not the government's position, we don't care about that. Not the culture's view. Not our neighbor's preference. But what is the truth about homosexuality according to the author of all truth, who is God? Well, to answer that question... We're going to look at several passages this morning, we'll be in Genesis mostly, and then we'll cover the rest next week, but the first passage is really all we actually need to answer the question at hand, and that answer is found at the very beginning. Well, the beginning of what? The beginning of creation, the beginning of your Bible, the start of human life in Genesis. So if you would, you can go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 to 28. Now, as you make your way there, and as we begin to answer the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? I just want to say again that God is a redeeming God. And so whether someone is an adulterer, or a liar, or a cheater, whatever the sin is, homosexuality included, that God promises salvation to all of those who will repent. Of their sin and believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior and so the homosexual is no different. We should also keep in mind that there's no sin beyond God's redemption for the repentant sinner and so likewise the one who stays in his sin will spend eternity in hell under the wrath of God's judgment and the one who repents will be saved. Well, you should be at Genesis by now. Let me go ahead and read that passage. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, God decides to make man in his image, right? This is in his image. And there's some interesting things that we should take note here. He doesn't create two males, but he could have. He doesn't create two females, but he could have. He creates male and female, those are in his image. And then it's interesting what does he command them to do after that? Well, the first thing he tells, the first thing he does is he blesses his creation, right? Now that's very interesting because God in blessing his creation is saying this is what is best. This is what is good. This is what is right. This is what is holy. So he blesses his creation of one male and one female and then he gives them a purpose, a task and a command. He says what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it although it might seem very simple, but in all reality, this helps us understand that homosexuality goes against the very creation that God said was good. It's a sin that rejects God's wisdom in creating man and woman. It effectively says, no God, you were wrong. That wasn't what was good. That wasn't what you should have blessed. But you see, God created the male and female, and they had a specific function. Their function was to come together and to fill the earth, to have children, something that only a husband and wife can and should do. Anything outside of that is a perversion of what God ordained. I want to continue on in Genesis and really just walk through the creation account and reason with you a little this morning. Chapter 2, you can go ahead and turn there, continues the account of God's making of Adam and Eve, and it gives us a little bit more description, and I think it's vital to the conversation. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter for you. It's a bit lengthy, but I think it's important. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 25 says, Thus the heavens and earth were completed, and all their hosts By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he rested from all the work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and heaven. And so in chapter 1, we are told God created male and female. Now, here in chapter 2, he's going to just describe that process a little bit more for us. We'll continue on verse 5 here. No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but amidst a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, man there as in a male. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The second, the name of the second river is Gion. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, it flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the beginning of mankind, right? If you will, put your eyes back on verse 18. We're going to kind of start from there and just work forward and discuss a little bit about what's happening here and the implications says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, this is a critical text because at this juncture, do you realize God could have created anything to be a suitable helper for Adam? I mean, there was nothing else made yet. It was just Adam and a bunch of animals. God cre- could have created anything he wanted to create for Adam and say, this, Adam, is what's right and what's good, a perfect helper for you. I mean, this is the sovereign God of the universe who's just now creating everything, right, that we know. And so it's important to recognize what is it that he created. He could have made another human just like Adam. But in God's infinite sovereign wisdom and his perfect knowledge, what did he make? Verse 21, 22... Tells us, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to man. So God, who's perfect in every way, omnipotent, that is, all powerful, omniscient, all knowing, sets out to make a perfect companion for Adam. And what does he do? What does he make? Well, God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he makes a woman who was a female in every way, biologically, mentally, socially. And then what was Adam's response? Verse 23, Adam says, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She wasn't the same as man but different from man and this was God's perfect design and intention for companionship that one man would have one woman as a companion as husband and wife that one woman would have one man as husband and wife and we see that in the very next verse because it actually says for this reason for this reason for what reason because woman comes from a man, and because woman was made for man, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. We see the institution of marriage here, and they shall become one flesh. You see, there's a spiritual joining that happens between a man and a woman in marriage that's truly lovely and pure and good, but if there's A sexual perversion or a deviation of this picture, it's turned into something vile and evil. And so when God was deciding in his infinite wisdom what kind of companion a man needed, it was Eve, a woman. So this is the account of the beginning of man and the beginning of all of creation. God makes everything perfect, right? He says this is good after every stage of making what he makes. Until he gets to man and he says, wait, this isn't good. He needs a companion. And he creates woman. One woman, one man joined together, and this is God's good design for relationship. Anything other than this arrangement is an attack against God's created order. This was God's design. To change it, to twist it, to deny it, to reject it is to judge God himself as having been less than perfect in his creation of man. And this is why I said at the beginning that we really only need to understand creation to know that homosexuality is something that is not God-ordained, that is, in fact, and in every way, totally contrary to God's design. God intended one man and one woman to be united In marriage, and to produce offspring and fill the earth. So we understand anything that sets itself against that is sin. If we understand creation and we ask these questions, it really answers the whole homosexuality issue. Homosexuality is nothing more than a perversion of God's good design of what companionship and sexual relationship should be between a man and his wife. Well, let's move on a little more. We're going to cover other texts as well. You'll find that we don't even make it out of Genesis before the subject of homosexuality comes up in Scripture. If you want to go ahead and turn with me to chapter 19 now of Genesis... You'll quickly discover you're familiar with this story. This is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, this is after the flood, right? We have chapter 1 in Genesis and chapter 6 of Genesis. God looks at the earth and says in verse 5 that, quote, the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So mankind didn't even get to chapter 5 before... Every intention and thought of his heart was evil continually. And now we just go one chapter later and we're about to see man continuing in sinfulness. And We know that God flooded the earth and he started humanity over with Noah and those with him, right? Well, my point in, my, my point in pointing out this little brief detour is simply to show just how quickly man moves to do evil, right? We only got to chapter five and God wiped everyone out because of their wickedness from chapter one to chapter six, but let's go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to focus on verses one through 13 of the 19th chapter. Let me read those to you. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, "'Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof.' But they said, "'Stand aside.' Furthermore, they said, "'This one came in as an alien.' And already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law, and your sons, and your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. That's quite the picture. Now, there are two common objections that we hear today about using this passage. Two objections that are used by those who support homosexuality. One is that the Bible never uses the term homosexuality. The second is that when speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, some would say that God destroyed the city not because of homosexuality, but because of a lack of hospitality. Well, that's interesting. We're going to see the answer to both of these in our passage this morning, but those are two of the big common objections with Sodom and Gomorrah, that God actually destroyed them because they had a lack of hospitality, not because of homosexuality. And the other is that, well, the word homosexuality is never used. If you speak any other foreign languages, that's an easy question, or if you just have common sense... But here's what we have, and I want to walk through this, just kind of verse by verse and rehash the story and think through it reasonably. So we have Lot here sitting at the entrance of the city gate, okay? And these two angels show up. Now, these are real angels. Now, Lot clearly knew that they were holy because it says that he rose up to meet them, and then what did he do? He bowed down with his face to the ground. So they were recognizable, at least to Lot, as being something more than just men. By the way, this is a typical response to those in Scripture who come face-to-face with angels, right? We hear this kind of thing. People are frightened. They bow down to the ground. They even try to worship the angels in some cases. And the angels often have to say something like, do not be afraid. In this case, after bowing down... His face before the angels, Lot quickly asked them to be guests in his home. Verse 2 says, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet so that you may rise early and go on your way. Well, that makes good sense, right? You have two angels in front of you. You're inviting them into your home. This is where it gets interesting. The angels reject Lot's invitation. No, no, we're going to sleep in the city and I mean, you think that if you're talking to an angel who you recognize as an angel, tells you that he's going to do something, or tells you no, that you leave him at that, right? I mean, this is an holy angel. Are you going to argue with him? No, the normal response would be, okay, right? I mean, this is God's messenger, um, But that's not Lot's response. He has a very strange response to being told no by an angel who can destroy an entire city. What's his response? Well, his response was to ignore their decline. And it says that he urged them strongly so that they turned aside and entered his house. I mean, there's some tension built here. You have these two holy angels that show up. Lot recognizes them such that he puts his face on the ground, bowing before them. Then he argues with the angels, begging them practically to come into his house. I mean, why would he need to do that? I mean, what is it that Lot knew that would cause him to disregard messengers sent from heaven? And clearly it has something to do with the fact that they were initially going to sleep in the city square, right? They say, no, we're going to sleep in the city square, and it goes on to say that he urged them strongly not to do that. I mean, it sounds a bit like warning someone not to hang around Central Park in New York City after the dark, right? I mean, someone says, hey, I'm going to go put a tent up or sleep in a sleeping bag in Central Park, you're, you're, you're going to advise against that. Well, why? I mean, because you don't even have to live in New York to know that bad things happen after dark there. Everybody knows that. People are murdered, they're kidnapped, they're raped, they're drugged, you name it, happens in Central Park. And so you would plead with someone who didn't know not to do that. You might urge someone to stay away from there after dark. And so Lot does a very similar thing. He urges the angels not to stay Now, here comes the evidence of Lot's concern in verse 4. He says, So everyone has just eaten in Lot's house, and now it says, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all people from every quarter. Oh, this must be the reason Lot knew something bad would happen or possibly What happened to us is interesting. Specifically, the passage says every male. The word men there is male, not mankind. So every male, and then it goes on to say not just every male, but young and old. And from every quarter surrounded Lot's house. Not people in general. When it says here, all the people from every quarter. The word there for people is speaking of a congregation, a gathering, a militant troop. It's defining what a large group of men is like. Every male from every quarter. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I want you for a moment, just imagine eating dinner at your house one night, and then all of a sudden, you have a mob of every male Young and old from your town surrounding your house. I'm pretty sure you're not going to wonder, was I not hospitable enough? That's what's going on here. It's frightening, but that's the scene. Well, what did they want? Verse 5 says that they called out to Lot, they yelled out and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. Now, I know you can gather from the context what that word relations means, but here is the term yada. It's used in the sense of a man having relations with his wife. So all of the men of the city, both young men and old, perversity was so bad in the city Homosexuality was so bad that every man, young and old, gathered around Lot's house to try to rape these angels. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a hospitality issue. Well, the passage goes on to say that Lot closes the door, and then he goes out and he begs them, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly so their intentions were wicked and Lot knew that now it's crystal clear that this has nothing to do with hospitality these men have clear intentions and Lot knows it you can't get around that in the language if you actually read through it it's really a silly argument to say that God destroyed Sodom because they weren't hospitable they intended to do wicked sexual acts to these men who were with Lot, to these angels. You can't get any clearer than that. It was so bad that every male was surrounding their house. James one fifteen says that when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it runs its course, brings forth death. This city was so wicked. That was on the brink of death. So here we see the height of the sin of homosexuality. These men were so blinded by lust and perversion that they were mobbing another man's house. I mean, think about that. And trying to rape angels. Well, the, continue, the story doesn't stop there, right? After Lot begs them to act wickedly, then Lot tries to appease them. We're just reading through the passages here, and now at this stage, I think Lot must have lost his mind temporarily, because what does he say? He says, I have two daughters who have not had relations with the man. By the way, that word relation is exactly the same word we read before, Yada. I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. So that makes that word crystal clear again, right? Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under my shelter's roof. Now, I don't know what's wrong with Lot at this stage. I think he's crazy to offer his daughters to this mob. But he's trying to protect these men and. I can imagine that scene must have been a pretty hectic scene. But I do want you to take specific notice of something here. We see what these men of Sodom wanted. Lot wasn't confused. He might have been stupid for offering his daughters to the mob, but he wasn't confused as to what the men wanted. But listen to their response After Lot offers them his two virgin daughters, but they said, stand aside. They weren't interested in women. They were homosexuals, a city full of them, so much so that they weren't interested in Lot's daughters, young and old, and they wanted to get to these two angels who came in the form of men. Well, the story goes on. The angels ended up blinding these men because they refused to go away. Now, at this point, you would think, okay, I've just been miraculously, instantaneously blinded. You're probably going to stop whatever it is you're doing, right? I mean, you're confronted by angels, and all of a sudden, these angels blind you. You would think you're done, right? Like at that stage... Clearly, I shouldn't be doing this. But listen to what it says, even to that, what their response is. I mean, I would be going in the opposite direction, and you would too, but no. Their homosexual lust had gotten such to the point that the text tells us, even after they were blinded, that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. It didn't even phase them. They were blinded miraculously by angels, And they literally wore themselves out still trying to get to them. I don't know how perverse you have to be to be in that frame of mind. Their sinful lust had gotten so extreme that they weren't even phased by being miraculously blinded. It continued on basically until they had no energy left. And then in verse 12 and 13, then the two men said to Lot, these are the angels, right? Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of this place for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Their sin was so great And I think it's pretty crystal clear what their sin was. Sodom and its neighboring city were destroyed for their sexual perversion, and more specifically, homosexuality. This is where, by the way, you might hear people say something like, well, the word homosexuality isn't even in the Bible. Well, that's true. The Bible was primarily written in Hebrew and Greek, and so anyone with any lick of common sense understands that when we translate one word from one language into words in another, you just have word differences. In most places in the Bible, where you see the word homosexuality in English, because they're translating it from another language, or homosexuality, the word there is the word for sodomy or sodomite. So if homosexuals don't like the word homosexual, if you want to be biblical, they're sodomites. That's the sin. And of course, that's in reference to what we've just seen in Sodom and Gomorrah. You can't get away from reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and not clearly understanding what sin is described there. Well, that's just in Genesis. There are several, several other passages that speak, I want to say more clearly, but I don't know how much clearer you can get than what we've already gone through, but also speak clearly. We're at a time for this morning, so we're going to continue. This was originally just going to be one Sunday, but I want to cover everything the Bible says in these two Sundays to give you a full clear understanding of God's view of homosexuality. What words are used in scripture, what objections there are, and how to answer those, which we will get just from reading the passages. And the point of doing, taking the time to do this is really so that you guys have an unquestionable understanding of God's view of homosexuality, and so that you'll have the tools to answer questions that you might get from time to time. I mean our society is sexually perverse. It's not gonna get any better. But before we close, I wanna I want to have you just quickly turn to First Corinthians six, nine. We'll give you a second to get there. First Corinthians six through nine. And so this morning. Just in Genesis, we see God's clear purpose for relationship, for companionship. And so you can't argue that companionship is between anything other than a man and a woman. That was God's perfect created design. You get past that and you find two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, who it's crystal clear their sin was homosexuality, and it had gotten so bad that God sent two angels to destroy them. That's just in the book of Genesis. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and we'll cover this passage in more detail next week. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers, inherit the kingdom of God that's pretty clear but here's something very important for the homosexual to know and for us to try to get to with the homosexual Paul says such were some of you such were some of you but you were washed but you were washed but you were sanctified This implies that you need to be washed, right? That you need to be sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And so I just want to reiterate here that while it is explicitly clear that homosexuals cannot and will not enter the kingdom of heaven, those who repent and turn from that lifestyle, who turn to Christ, can be saved the Apostle Paul here is speaking to the believers in Corinth. And he's saying, Nor effeminate nor homosexuals will enter the kingdom of God, but some were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified. And so there is the possibility of salvation for those trapped in this lifestyle. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our mind, even as we continue and talk about the sinful nature and the wrath of God that rests on the homosexual. There is hope for every homosexual that will bend the knee to Christ as their Lord and Savior and repent and flee from their lifestyle. Let's pray.